Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific Mikoroi Hawkins. Coming up, they appear to listen to people, but the concerns are not really brought to the core government. Concerns raised over the dumping of tailings waste from the Wafi gold pool mine in Papua New Guinea also. Firstly, it is encouraging that New Zealand is recognizing the importance of loss and damage. Tuvalu has welcomed New Zealand's support and contribution towards loss and damage, climate financing at COP27. And later on, we hear about the vision Vanuatu's newly elected Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsakau has for his country. An appeal is being made to an Australian government agency over the dumping of tailings waste from the Wafi Gopu mine in Papua New Guinea. Three groups have lodged a complaint with the National Contact Point for Responsible Business Conduct, which reports to the OECD. Australian-based mining, Newcrest Mining and Harmony Gold Mining hope to be granted a special mining lease for the project next month. The complainants say the companies don't have community consent to dump their tailings in the Huon Gulf of Morobe. The matter was raised at this week's AGM for Newcrest and the company chief executive, Sandeep Biswas, told shareholders that after 10 years, study found the safest method of disposal, the one that posed the least threat environmentally, socially and seismically, was deep sea tailings disposal or DSTD. He said the tailings will go two kilometres deep into a trench where they will mix with the vast quantity of sediment carried out to sea by the Barkham River. Mr Bezwas says Newcrest has had extensive discussions with communities up and down the coast as well as around the side of the mine and along the route of the pipeline that will carry the DSTP. The complainants, environmental activists, Jubilee Australia, PNG Centre for Environmental Law and Community Rights and the Environmental Church of PNG allege that the companies have failed to obtain community consent for the proposed use of DSTD, they have failed to provide an adequate environmental assessment of the proposed approach and there has been a lack of due process in regards to free prior and informed consent from the impacted communities. John Wiseman spoke with our PNG correspondent and Morobi resident Scott Mwaide about Wafi Gopu. The government is determined to get Wafi Gopu up and running because of the current holes in the budget that we have. And that is not really a secret. It's been obvious for some time the government is cash-strapped and more than a few ministers have come out and said that we need Wafi Gopu and any other mine that we can get up and running in the next 10 years. It needs to happen, and especially Wafi Gopu, which is so close to construction. So that's been the attitude of the cabinet of the Marape government, and that's been supported by the Morabe provincial government under the new governor. Luther Wenge. As always seems to be the case in Papua New Guinea, there doesn't appear to be a lot of effort put in by government to isolate the environmental concerns or to do something about the environmental concerns that communities have. And in this particular case, this is what has sparked this appeal from Jubilee Australia, from CELCOR, the Environmental Legal Agency in PNG, and from the community, churches as well. Yes, that is the case. I've worked in the NGO circles before and I've seen the attitude of the environment department going into communities. They 
appear to listen to people, but the concerns are not really brought to the core government and expressed as it should. And that's always been the frustration of people in communities who feel that they haven't been adequately heard or their opinions are are stifled by agencies of government. And that's primarily what's being seen and expressed by Jubilee and uh, Selco and and a group of other organizations. What do they want to see in the communities? Well, two things. One, and it's a double-edged sword for the communities. One, the communities wants education, schools, bridges, roads and all that. But at the same time, they understand that if the companies were to dump mine waste into their oceans, then it means an end of livelihood for them. You know, they, they can't fish near the shores. The environment will be damaged and destroyed. And they've seen, it, there's already an example in, in Basamuk where the Ramuniko mine is dumping mine waste into the Basamuk Bay. 15 years ago, there was a pristine beach. Now there's pollution along the beaches. So they're taking that, they're seeing that already. And the uh, communities who are actively campaigning against it say they don't want this happening in, in the Morbi province. All right. Jubilee Australia, and with uh, these PNG groups, has laid a complaint with the Australian National Contact Point for Responsible Business Conduct. And this is an organisation or a body that feeds into the OECD, and it's very powerful. Had an impact last year on Rio Tinto over the Panguna mine in Bougainville, and Rio's now involved in trying to make an assessment of the environmental damage it caused there. What do you think might come out of them approaching this body over Wafi Kolpu? Yeah, you know, Bougainville is a mine that's been closed for some time. So the impact on Panguna itself would be, as you saw, but, and this is based on the experience of Ramu Nickel that uh, I, I saw firsthand. There was a lot of campaigning going on about uh, Ramu Nickel, but the government still went ahead and allowed the mine to open. And I gather that that is going to be uh, a similar situation with the Wafi Gopu project because Wafi Gopu is bigger than Ramuniko. And to many, that project will plug up quite a few holes in the in the budget, in the national budget, not just for the next five years, but probably for the next decade. So it's an important project for the economy. It's an important project for any government. And, and that's from their perspective. We now have, though, communities right across the country who are, are very active in fighting for their rights over these environmental developments. So the landscape has changed, hasn't it? Yes, it has changed in some respects, and in in many respects it's regressed. Ten years ago, 10, 15 years ago, it was very active. There were communities were able to force the government to reconsider legislative changes. The situation now is that the visibility that we saw 10, 15 years ago is no longer there. There are communities that want to be active, but the the direction that they want and the coordination is, is absent at the moment. So that's a weakness that many communities have seen and are experiencing. It's become really difficult for them to actually bring all their resources together because they're struggling with trying to get the leaders of the communities together to speak with one voice and to express it. That's why you see organizations speaking out for them. The involvement of the Lutheran Church is interesting in this case. 
Yes, Morbe province is a predominantly Lutheran province and the church has always been at the forefront of campaigning against environmental issues. So as was the case with Basamuk Bay dumping from by Ramon Nico, the pre-former bishop Kigasung was an active campaigner. He was leading from the front basically talking about environmental issues and how it's unbiblical for people to allow environmental damage. And the current bishop has uh, also extended that call. And there are active Lutheran communities in Morabe province, in Medang, and other provinces where there are large Lutheran populations also speaking out against the plant dumping by Wafi Gopu. At COP27, Tuvalu has welcomed New Zealand's contribution towards compensation, stating that while it's a step in the right direction, whether or not the funding is significant ought to be questioned. Earlier this week, New Zealand joined just a handful of other countries in giving money to developing countries for the loss and damage wrought by climate change. Climate Change Minister James Shaw and Foreign Affairs Minister Nanaya Mahuta announced $20 million will be ring-fenced from a climate fund filed from revenue gathered from the emissions trading scheme. The Tuvalu Finance Minister, Seve Painu, welcomed the announcement, saying stronger commitment needs to be seen by neighbouring partners in this fight for climate justice. Through a facilitator on the ground in Egypt at COP27, Lydia Lewis and Rachel Nath were able to put some questions to Steve Painu, beginning with one about his thoughts on the support offered by New Zealand. Firstly, it is encouraging that New Zealand is recognising the importance of loss and damage and therefore um, a specific uh, funding window uh, for loss and damage for the Pacific. Uh, So in that regard, uh, it is encouraging. Uh, In terms of the quantum, um, I think it's something that uh, the Pacific Island nations would be keen to um, interact and discuss with New Zealand as to what they're thinking uh, behind that quantum, because as we all are aware and what uh, the Pacific Island nations have been advocating for, it's quite a sizable um, amount of uh, uh, climate finance needed for loss and damage. And $11 million uh, is just not sufficient uh, and not large enough. So. I, I would see a process of discussions uh, ensuing from uh, this public announcement by New Zealand as to how best we could uh, use this initial seed money to, to catalyze um, mobilization of additional uh, finance. But the, encouragement, uh, the encouraging thing is that it's for the Pacific, uh, uh, the losses and damage incurred by the Pacific, and that's the encouragement uh, on that announcement. And what is your position on the inclusion of loss and damage uh, to the official discussion at COP27? Yeah, we are now really applauding it. Uh, finally, we got it on the agenda, the formal agenda of the COP. For the past several decades, we've been fighting for it. And finally, uh, we have made the breakthrough. I think what is important for us now is to seize this opportunity and really make use of it. Uh, Our position has been clear from day one until now, which is to get agreement among the parties to establish an operating entity of the financial mechanism under the convention, specifically addressing loss and damage. And secondly, to uh, get a a commitment in this call uh, for a two-year work program that would uh, uh, outline a process 
for developing this operating entity, the structure, the modality, and, and the procedures. And to follow up on that, what would the Pacific like to see in terms of accessibility to this funding? We would like to have a special consideration for the uniqueness of uh, the sets, uh, so that there should be um, a special window uh, for um, the case of the sets, the smaller small island developing states, uh, given our capacity uh, to access and also to implement. And the ease with which we can uh, get that money triggered down to the grassroots uh, as expeditiously as possible. So um, streamlining the procedures, having uh, simplified access modalities and having a special window specifically targeting uh, the sits. Great. And uh, just with regard to COP27 more generally, uh, we're a few days now into negotiations. What is your interpretation? How have negotiations, uh, negotiations been so far? It's, it's, it's tense. Um, and uh, I just see some uh, toughness uh, in the negotiating rooms. Uh, already uh, parties are now beginning to show their positions. Um, so, but... <laughs> This is not an unusual call. As always, uh, every year, this is what we need to uh, go through. We need to be patient. Uh, we have clear priorities. We have a clear position on what we need, and we just keep on that fight. And uh, being seven years onwards from the signing of the Paris Agreement, um, how have things shaped up for Pacific Island countries and territories, in your view? Well, um, at a uh, ground level, uh, nothing has changed, really. Um, there's a lot of uh, you know, climate change impacts and needs that, that have remained unmet. And that's why we keep on uh, this fight in this COP, uh, so that partners and parties uh, should realize uh, the urgency with which this uh, issue needs to be addressed at all fronts, uh, not only in the mitigation part, the adaptation, climate finance, and now the loss and damage. Um, so it's, it's really uh, uh, an urgent uh, action that is required by all parties. Still on COP27, a new platform to give world leaders a glimpse into the lived realities of people bearing the brunt of climate-related issues in the Pacific has been launched at the Climate Conference. Whatever action or inaction comes out of the Climate Conference as it heads into its second and final week will have a significant impact on the way of life for Pacific peoples for the years to come. Called Frontline Truths, the online platform includes things like climate mobility and the preparations for relocation because of the impacts of the crisis. Rachel Nath with the story. Movement and adaptation are rooted in the origins of Pacific people, but a new wave of movement brought about by climate crisis is fast becoming a reality, says 350.org Asia-Pacific representative Ms. Drew Slatter. Frontline Truth's platform is that it is a collection of stories about, about climate mobility from around the Pacific. The stories collected in Frontline Truths are simply uh, you know, a collection of, of the hopes the fears, um, the lessons, 
and the the aspirations of our people when it comes to climate-induced movement or, or mobility. Ms. Slatter tells us while people in the region have no authority over their displacement, their voices must be heard and validated in the decision-making process. And the reason it's so important is because decisions are being made now about the movement of our people and about, you know, um, the documentation of our cultures, uh, the, docu the documentation of our knowledge. You know, what happens when, when people are forced to relocate, uh, when entire cultures are moved? You know, do families stay together? Are they separated? Does culture change depending on the land you are on? So the importance of this platform is that any of these policies or these frameworks or these decisions about the movement of our people due to climate change needs to be informed by the stories and the realities of people on the ground. Pacific Climate Warriors Brianna Fruens's Frontline Truths exposes not only physical challenges, but the contributing impacts of the climate crisis. If you actually look into the stories, it doesn't just really touch upon climate change, but if you look between the lines, you could see some intersectionalities as well with the struggles of our people. And um, for example, um, you would see some some nuances within our women's stories and see how climate change truly impacts the women of our region. And so having these stories uplifted on, on a platform like Frontline Truths, where it becomes accessible to everyday people, we're able to actually take a step back from our busy lives and be reminded of what a huge crisis that is not only environmental, but is humanitarian. Ms. Forenses, with negotiations happening at COP27 that will largely impact Pacific lives, this was the appropriate platform to launch Frontline Truths. Also, it becomes a platform that lives on beyond COP and it becomes a platform that um, an average person can access that won't be as intimidating as the documents that are drafted in negotiation rooms where they can connect on a human level to these stories and maybe feel a little bit less intimidated and a little bit less uh, scared to be a part of the climate conversations when we can make it more human. With COP27 ending next week, the aim is that the discussion will continue through the Frontline Truths online space. Vanuatu's newly elected Prime Minister, Ismail Kalsikau, has outlined his vision for the country, which includes legislating for more stability and reviewing the country's foreign policy. Mr. Kalsakao emerged the victor of a recent snap election brought about by the dissolution of parliament after a period of instability in the last parliament. He was elected unopposed but heads a large coalition of political parties with lots of big personalities involved. Joining me from Port Vila to talk more about what the new Prime Minister has said so far is Dr. Tess Newton-Kane, a senior research fellow and the project leader for the Griffith Asia Institute Pacific Hub and a Nivanuatu citizen. Thank you, Thomas, for sitting with him, Mifala Tess. Tell us, what can we expect from this new government based on what it said about its first 100 days in office? Well, the Prime Minister gave a... a a lengthy interview to VBTC um, uh, in which he touched on what his vision was or what his hopes were for this legislative period. Um, he flagged a couple of things. He flagged wanting to make some constitutional changes 
uh, in order to try and secure a bit more political stability. And he also flagged that there would be a review of Vanuatu's foreign policy. He was at pains to stress that there would be no change in terms of Vanuatu remaining a non-aligned country, which has been a like the spine of Vanuatu's foreign policy um, since it became independent. But he said that they would be looking at other aspects of foreign policy, including how they would uh, deal with relationships with uh, diplomatic and development partners. Uh, as you say, new government, new prime minister, um, some interesting appointments within the cabinet, particularly, I think, around the position of deputy prime minister. So Sato Kilman in at deputy prime minister and also minister for land. He's a very experienced politician, a former prime minister himself. So I expect him to play a significant role in, in what this new government does. Um, I ran into a senior member of the opposition this morning. He tells me confidently that he doesn't plan on being in opposition for long and that he already thinks that there are cracks showing in the government's coalition. So I don't know how valid that is. You know, it could just be talked up the road or it could be valid. But yeah, I mean, I, I, as we know, um, Vanuatu politics tends to be fairly vibrant and fluid at the best of times. So um, expecting some more news about disputes in terms of election results, which may see um, some changes in the lineup. But yeah, it's all it's all happening. Um, the new foreign minister, Jotham Napat, met with his ministry to get things started there. As we know, Ralph Regenvan is in at the Ministry of Climate Change, and I expect he'll be you know, making his presence felt quite significantly and soon in that role, it aligns very much with his previous interests. Um, did Salwai get a ministerial portfolio? No, no, he didn't, which, you know, and a few people have commented on, on that to me and noted that with a bit of surprise that he didn't get a ministerial portfolio. So it'd be interesting to see where he lands. I mean, I expect in terms of uh, he obviously has a lot of experience to bring, and he was generally considered an exceptional minister for finance um, a few years ago. So, you know, I expect he will be playing a role in the background, but no, no ministerial portfolio for him uh, as yet. Mm, interesting. Now, now um, we've had um, some other news about Vanuatu crop up in the last last wee bit, and that's that the EU has um, the EU. Council has uh, continued its suspension, but made more more permanent its suspension of Vanuatu's <clears throat> visa waiver to the EU and raised concerns about um, the Vanuatu citizenship scheme. Um, can you tell us yeah. a bit more about that and the impacts of that? Unfortunately, I think this was kind of, um, you know, a bit of a, an inevitability because there just wasn't sufficient work going into uh, de addressing the concerns that the EU Council had raised, and fixing up the governance and the systems to make it something to make that system more appropriate that they would allow that visa waiver to, to be reinstated. Um, now, I think that you know we would expect the new government to be addressing this as a as a fairly significant matter of priority because. That scheme, um, those citizenship schemes, are, is a very significant revenue earner for the government. In fact, for quite a long time, it was the most significant revenue earner. And obviously, the government needs to be earning revenue to pay for programs and service delivery. So, and without that waiver, without that ability for people to be able to travel in Europe on a visa-free basis, 
the the value of the citizenship by investment um, decreases quite markedly. And briefly before we go, some sports. The semi-finals of the Rugby League World Cup are being played this weekend in London. Tournament favourites New Zealand will take on Australia at 8.45am on Saturday. New Zealand time and England take on Samoa at 3.30am on Sunday. While the English did thrash Toa Samoa by 60 points to 6 in pool play, the Pacific underdogs will be coming into the game still amped from their thrilling 2018 upset victory over Matima Tonga, who are also highly rated in the tournament. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas, and look at me for next time more.